The Athletic. The Race F1 Tech Show. Brought to you by Aramco. Gary reports back from the British Grand Prix, McLaren's turnaround explained, and we pay a visit to Aston Martin's new F1 base. Welcome to the latest episode of the Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. I'm Ed Straw, and joining me as always is Gary Anderson, a designer of Grand Prix winning machinery and someone who has lived and breathed F1 tech for half a century. We were together at Silverstone just a few days ago, but the big question I'd like to ask you is whether you've recovered from the shock of seeing a Jordan 195 on a flatbed being driven past us on Friday. That must have taken you back to some tough times 30-odd years ago. Yeah, I've seen a few Jordans on a few flatbeds in my time, I must admit. But then, you know, when you when you look back then, you know, the reliability of cars then and, and the current cars was just a, a completely different world. We didn't have all the simulation stuff. So, you know, things went wrong. They went wrong on track. Um, so it, it wasn't a surprise to see it um, being hoisted on the back of the, a flatbed and being brought into the paddock. bit disappointing, I suppose. But, um, you know, as I say, with the reliability of these cars now, normally... It's it's quite impressive. We're, we are starting to see a few little hiccups because of the uh, the engine, the power unit limitations. I think are starting to affect a few people here and there. And uh, I think by the end of the season, we might see a bit more of that. Whether it ends up with um, you know reliability problems or just penalties prior to the reliability problems, I'm not quite sure. Because obviously, you know, it's like one of the things that Peugeot did when we were we were with them with that 195. They had a safety system there whenever the anything went wrong, if the oil pressure dropped below a certain level or if the air valve pressure dropped below a certain level, um, they just shut the engine down. So you would very seldom see a, a smoky situation. It would normally be just the car would stop on the side of the track. Um, oh, an electrical problem. Um, and that's sort of the same with, with really the penalties now as opposed to seeing you know, a big, big pile of blue smoke. Um, I'd rather see the big pile of blue smoke personally, but there you go, that's, that's life. Well, you normally only see the engine problems generally when uh, the drivers keep going a bit longer than they should do. You think of the the Lewis Hamilton one a few years ago in, well, 2016 it was in Malaysia, or the Sebastian Vettel in Korea blow up where they just sort of keep their foot in a bit longer than maybe they should do and uh, you get the fireworks. But you I mean, what I'm saying about, um, about that is really in, in 1995 in Hungary, the next, the next Grand Prix, um, Rubens was running, I think he was running fourth actually, last lap, last corner, uh, or the corner before the last penultimate corner, engine just shut down um, from the fact that the air valve system had uh, been leaking. And um, as I say, the safety system just shut it down. And uh, that was one one time that I sort of had to say to Peugeot, look, we have to, because we would have finished, and we would have finished fourth. I don't know where we finished, I think it was sixth or seventh or something, the time he got limped to the finish line. But, um, you know, we would have finished fourth, I believe, from memory. And, you know, that's the time whenever you've got to you know, you've got to run the gauntlet sometimes and that last two or three hundred yards that you needed to do cost us lots of places and in, uh, in, in points in the championship. So sometimes you've got to be a bit bold and just switch off all those safety devices, especially in a Grand Prix. You know, I think just to make that memory even worse, I think Rubens was third on, on that lap. He was certainly third at the start of the lap. Okay. With, uh, with Berger about seven or eight seconds behind him. So I presume Berger swooped past as the failure was manifesting itself. So, yeah. As they say, as you get older, your memory gets uh, a, bit, uh, a bit less. But yeah, no, no, we were right up there, as I say. And that was, that was one of the times whenever, you know, it, it caught us out, that safety feature. Uh, it's fine in practice, all that sort of stuff. But when it comes to the risk, sometimes you just have to bite the bullet and say, if you've got a problem, you've got a problem. And, and ride the storm if you can, if you can't. Well, you might as well fail at the side of the track as fail on the pit lane. It's one of the many reasons you sometimes hear in the on-car, uh, the radio, the pits-to-car radio, you get them told to hit fail things and that kind of thing and manipulate things because sometimes they get warnings or, or sensors or whatever that are telling them there might be problems and there aren't, they have to cancel. So it's a very complicated dance going on in the background with those. But anyway, we've, uh, we've digressed uh, a bit <laughs> at the start of this podcast. But as usual, we tend to start off with a free hit for you, Gary, in terms of topics. So what's caught your eye this week? Well, I, yeah, seeing the cars running uh, at, at uh, Silverstone was quite interesting. We were looking at it from the BRDC centre there where you see the end of the Wellington Strait breaking into a sort of late apex long left-hander and then into the uh, long right-hander, I think it's called Luffield, back onto the, the old pit strip. Um, and it, it's quite interesting because you know, you're looking at the cars and, and the big thing you can see, I think, is that 
if anybody makes a mistake, you know, let's say they come in a little bit too quick, um, you either have a, a bit of a, a bit of a strange rear end on the car, a bit nervous, you know, and you have to sort of correct the car and you and you run a bit wide, or you come in a little bit too quick and you can get the car stopped, but not not where you want it to be. So then you get a, a, a dose of understeer. So either way, you just sort of miss the apex. You just run wide that little bit. And it seems to be, you know, partially um, from the weight of the car. Once the car is sort of overworked the tires that little bit, be the front or rear tire, the weight of the car just, the momentum just keeps it going. Um, and, you know, sitting there watching it with you, Ed, you know, you could see that uh, the cars that were decent, and this was on Friday morning, and I'm, I'm saying, you know, the McLarens look pretty good, the Red Bulls look pretty good. Um, you know, and from there on down, it was sort of progressively getting to be that the car, you know, the, the smaller teams as such would miss would miss the apex more often. And it's, um, I didn't really believe it at the time that it would sort of transfer as nicely as it did to the to the sort of performance for the weekend. But it, it did. And the, like, as I say, the cars that could actually turn and get the apex, keep the front end, were definitely, as the weekend progresses, end up, you know, at the top of the pile, which I suppose is what you'd expect. But it's quite strange that it was so, it was, it was fairly black and white, I think you might call it. It's one of those things you often say that you can't make a quick car looks slow or whatever a car can't hide its nature and yeah. I guess we did see as you said a little bit of that on the Friday and I think probably the one thing that slightly benefits is because it was a little bit windy some of that was maybe slightly exaggerated but obviously with your eye you didn't notice it <laughs> anyway but yeah it did very much correlate. It, it is true that the wind affects cars um, and it always will do because you know there are aerodynamic projectiles as such but the thing is the wind will affect cars that have got peaky downforce um more than cars that have got reasonably stable downforce. You know, it's a, what happens with the wind is it's, you get a plus or a minus because you get a headwind or a sidewind or a frontwind or whatever, and it affects the car. But if you've got a, a reasonably stable aerodynamic platform, the wind will just lose your grip, and the car will stay underneath you. You might not be able to go quite around the corner, but that's life. Whereas with a peaky, peaky downforce car, it will it'll bring in, you know, a, a one-end problem as opposed to a whole car problem. So, you know, a car that's got a little bit of understeer, a car that's got, um, you know, let's say the, the, you know, the front wing end plates are very, running very critically or the front wing flaps are running very, at a very critical level and the wind affects it more, the problem will be bigger. And I've seen that in the past, especially, you know, whenever we were sort of going through the bargeboard era and, and trying to get bargeboards to work very hard. I mean, they, they were very good things. They, they produced, you know, in, in my day, they were producing sort of 15% of the overall downforce of the car. They themselves produced nothing. They just changed the airflow to the, the sides of the floor and, and created the ceiling system down the side of the floor and uh, and brought you know the vortices down the side of the floor. But when you got a bit of crosswind and, and the bars boards were if the bars boards were working really hard, when you got a bit of cross, crosswind and the bars board fell over, then the whole car just lost a massive amount of downforce. So as I say, it's 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 about making sure that you're you don't have too picky a downforce because crosswind or tailwind or headwind will affect it will affect that type of car even more than a car that's got a nice benign level of downforce drivers still complain because the grip's going away but then that's what drivers are they do complain a lot there was also uh, quite a good example in terms of the way the mclaren looked uh, on friday because it was looking pretty good through brooklands but it wasn't going super quick in terms of its outright time but it always looked very kind of honest and true through that corner and obviously the quicker corners is a big strength for that car. Don't want to talk too much about the McLaren, but that does show how sometimes the, regardless of the pace a car's going, you can actually see its qualities. And obviously, the Red Bull look very, very strong as well, just nice and consistent, and always doing what the driver wants it to do. Yeah, I mean, it is one of those things. You you have to accept that all the teams will go through their work schedule to try to get to understand the cars as as best they can. Um, and especially if you're putting developments on the car, so you you will you know you will ne- not necessarily be out there just wringing its neck. You will be driving at a pace where you sort of want to make sure that you can feel the car, and um, and the fuel load would dictate that you know the lap time's not really there, and the car might be fairly heavy. But at least the team and your and your driver are trying to understand the car. And I actually was impressed by McLaren's workload this weekend. You know they they did a good job um, overall. You know, they got the best out of the car they could. Very close to pole, which would have been a, a bit of a, a strange one. I think we'd all have said that, but not quite. But, you know, second, third in the grid. And then in the race, you know, they were there. 
they were hanging on. They were they were getting away from the guys that were in fourth, and they were making um, Max reasonably honest. I still think there was probably a bit more in the in the Red Bull at that point in time, but you know they were they were hanging on there for a while, and um, yeah, impressive with both the drivers as well, not not just one driver with both the drivers. Yeah, very much so. Very much the story of the weekend that one. We'll come back to McLaren a little bit shortly, but actually, I, I did want to talk about the Red Bull because. As you pointed out, it did seem like just such a compliant car because everybody talks about the ride height control and that kind of thing. And the beauty of it isn't just that it rigidly holds the car in the place it needs to be. It does that while giving the driver the feedback they need and the feel. You know, it doesn't look like a, a McLaren of 10 years ago. I remember we watched plenty of times when the, the McLaren had that phase when they had to have the car really stiff and it was sort of climbing over the chicanes very, very uh, jaggedly. But that seems to be the impressive thing with the Red Bull, that it's able to achieve that control or achieve that ride height platform control while actually suspending the car and dealing with the bumps and all that kind of thing. It's doing things that could often be at odds. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 a car that, you know, they've got a lot of um, anti-dive and anti-lift on the car, and, uh, and other people have it now as well. Um, so don't, don't, don't let's say that's the magic bullet by any means. But they've got a lot of anti-lift and anti-dive in the car to try to control the aerodynamic, uh, the, the, the forces, um, and the, the right height change during braking. Um, well, especially during braking, because that's when it works. You know, longitudinal loads in the car, um, you're talking braking at 5, 6G probably. And you, you, you transfer a lot of load onto the tyres, um, because you know the centre of gravity height of these cars is all pretty similar, um, the the wheelbase of these cars is all pretty similar, so they all transfer weight onto those um, the front re- front wheels when you hit the brake pedal. The thing you don't want to do is transfer aerodynamic load onto the front as well. If you could do, you would love to transfer aerodynamic load onto the rear during braking, um, because then it, the two sort of compensate for each other to a certain extent, um, and then there's not that many cars do that. Um, however, I think Red Bull, uh, it, it's, it's the, the least weight transfer onto the front wheels or at least aerodynamic transfer onto the front wheels, but because they've got the anti, anti dive and anti, anti lift on the car, they can then run the suspension a bit softer because the, the total, the, the total all, you know, the, 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 two of them add up to the total. Um, but the anti, anti dive and anti lift on the front and rear suspension, it does nothing when you hit a curb. It's, it's there. It's a freebie. So getting the car softer when you hit curbs with the springs, because you've got the anti-dive and anti-lift on the car, they support it under braking. Uh, the two, you know, the two go hand in hand. So they can run a softer car, not get the aerodynamic transfer that would normally happen just by allowing the car to sit on its springs, or not getting the, the feedback that means you need to stiffen the car more and more and more to stop that aerodynamic transfer. So you know they've they've gone they've gone about it. You know, obviously it's easy to say because they won a few races this year. But they've gone about it in the correct way. They've you know, got the car supported mechanically through the braking phase, but they're able to clip curbs and, and um, you know, get the, the mechanical grip in the slower corners as well. But I think the thing that's really interesting with this is, as you say, that all makes perfect sense. Anti-dive, anti-lift, all these geometries, they're not new things that Red Bull has invented by any stretch of the imagination. So it just seems really impressive that they've managed to get it all working these this collection of existing ideas there's nothing particularly magical about them in isolation but it's that combination of them together getting it all working and it's remarkable that it's taken time for others to kind of catch up with this which i guess shows how difficult it is to actually make all of this work architecturally and control it and and actually have the race car perform as you want it to yeah i mean it's 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 one of those things that's why you got clever teams you know that that's what they're set they set out to do you know it's a, it's a, com- a combination of taking all these bits it's like a bits of a jigsaw and trying to place one of the bits first you know a jigsaw you, you normally i'd look for the corner bits do the corners and then do around the, the outside and then you sort of build it up from there but in a racing car that doesn't always work you know you need, to, you need to start with all of the bits in a big pile and then prioritize them and obviously you know red bull have done that that very well you know the the thing is Red Bull had it last year as well. You know, it was there for everybody to see last year. But um, I think it was only only uh, Alfa Romeo that actually had sort of anti-dive and anti-lift on their, on their car. Um, but it's there for everybody to see. 
but it's not just a matter of putting on the car and the way you go. It's, it's, it's a hell of a lot more complicated than that because it brings in characteristics to the car that's, that, you know, you need to sort of build your way into it and you need your aerodynamic platform to compensate for it. You know, if you had a car that center pressure is moving forward, um, under braking, uh, the underfloor center pressure is moving forward under braking, just by putting anti, anti, uh, dive on it to hold the front up, it won't change that. It'll still do that. So you need the aerodynamic platform to go with it as well. And, you know, it's a whole, as I say, it's a whole lot of bits of a jigsaw and you're trying to place them all more or less at once. You can't afford to start with one because they all interact and they all need to be, you know, get the same level of priority, priority to be honest. Yeah, and we very much see that manifested in the fact that all of that chasing pack swaps around from race to race, doesn't it? So lots of people have got cars that work quite nicely in a certain range of conditions or a certain corner range, etc. whereas Red Bull's got the car for all seasons and is reaping the reward for it. So yeah, great to be able to watch the cars trackside with you uh, uh, again at Silverstone and uh, yeah, learn a little bit more about them. Well, let's get back onto the big talking point from Silverstone, which is that McLaren revival. It was built on the major upgrade introduced in Austria the previous weekend and augmented by that new nose and front wing that Lando Norris ran at Silverstone. About a tenth of a second, the team reckoned that was worth at Silverstone. I must admit, McLaren almost seemed to me too confident about all these changes before they came in. I remember they were very excited about it in the races leading up to it. And I must admit, I've got fairly used to teams getting very excited about upgrades tend to be and tend to end up being a little bit disappointed so were you surprised by how quickly things have turned around for mclaren it wasn't so long ago in miami where they were an absolute disaster and now to be able to be best of the rest they would have been second and third on merit in that race but for piastri losing his podium to the safety car timing yes i'm impressed obviously that they've, they've been able to pull it around so quickly and so well you know you can normally see a team taking a few strides to go forward but not the strides that mclaren have done um, the, the, you know, they were, they were competitive or Norris was competitive in Austria as well with a part one of the update package. So let's not discount the fact that it, that the car is actually working a lot better. Um, I think their, you know, their biggest problem was to try to sort of migrate the car performance, the, the, the car balance in low speed corners against the car balance in high speed corners prior to this update, those two were, were sort of a drift of each other. You could get the car decent in fast corners, but then it understeered like a pick in low-speed corners, and vice versa. You, you got, uh, got rid of the understeer in low-speed corners, and the rear was nervous in high-speed corners. So getting the two to, to come together. Um, but it, I think what you know McLaren have done more than anything else is they have reacted to the situation. You know, Whenever the, they had a change of structure and James Key went, you know, I rate James, so I'm not going to by any means criticise him, but it sort of opened the door for people that were working under James to sort of express themselves a little bit. Now, they haven't had any new people joining them from the other teams yet. They have one coming, I think, from Ferrari and one coming from Red Bull. So those two together will either destroy this, this working operation they have right now or make it stronger. Um, but the guys that, were, that are there were there. So they were, always, they were always working, but it seemed they were a little bit harnessed for some reason. Not sure, quite sure why that was. Um, but they've been able to express themselves now and, and go down a different route. And, uh, you know, their operation at the track was was good as well. It was a whole, the whole thing was very good, you know. So they're not, they haven't left many stones unturned since putting this new sort of management structure in place. Um, so, yes, I'm surprised they made a step they did, but I'm not, I'm, I'm also not surprised that they weren't going to make a step forward, but they've made a bigger step than I expected. I'd like to see a couple more races, as normal we say. You know, Hungary's a bit different, high downforce. But um, I don't see any reason why they won't be back up there. And, you know, they, they benefit a little bit at Silverstone as well because Aston Martin definitely dropped the ball for some reason. Um, you know, Alpine weren't really at the show. Ferrari fought the battle a bit but didn't really get there in the end. Um, so maybe they benefited a little bit at that point in time. But I was more impressed by the start of the race because, you know, as I said, they were able to hang on to, to the back of Max Verstappen, albeit that Max was probably driving with one arm out the window, you know, and uh, singing a Dutch song to himself or something. Um, but even so, you know, they were, they, were running, they were running very well. 
getting away from the Ferraris. So credit where credit's due, they've done a good job. You mentioned the the technical changes there, and obviously McLaren have got this interesting system now where they do basically have three technical directors. Now, you're, you're right, Rob Marshall, who's technical director engineering and design, he's not there yet. You've also got the technical director car concept, uh, David Sanchez, who's not there yet. And then you've got the technical director for aero, who's Peter Padromu, who's been there for quite some time. But that structure is kind of already operating. Uh, Neil Holdy, for example, is, is in the Rob Marshall role. He's his deputy, but he's effectively that in that role at the moment so it is interesting how that's working together in terms of spreading out the role and it seems to be all about trying to make people be able to concentrate on what they're good at rather than getting sort of bogged down in the day-to-day minutiae of the the sort of more bureaucratic and processy stuff in in the factory and just actually doing the job so it does seem like a very very early gently encouraging sign about the change that's been then put in and it should note Andrea Stella was very much at pains after the race that's the new team principal to say that it's not actually about the personnel as in James Key going and others coming but just that shift in the way the structure and the system works has actually already had a benefit in terms of just accelerating their progress and making them see where they need to where they need to change direction so do you think there's enough from this one step to say actually this is a team that does appear to be on the right track now? Yeah, I do. I mean, the big thing for me, I suppose, is that whenever you look at some of the other teams, um, they're not they're not accepting where they are. <clears throat> they're not genuinely sort of saying, right, we we should be better than this. And obviously, I'm going to name two top teams in, in Mercedes and in, in Ferrari. They both bring developments. But the the thing that I think McLaren did was to sort of re, reshuffle themselves to, to, to try to make sure that everybody was realising the problem. And I found this in my time as well. When you're technical director for a team and you're going to the races and, you know, the whole thing's there, you, you, you sort of find grey areas. If we had done that, it might have, you know, we might have been better or we should have done that and it would have been better and vice, you know, all that sort of stuff. So it is quite important that you separate those two bits and, and try to make sure that your race team report back with the problems and the drivers as well as part of the race team. They come back and they make sure that the team of people that are responsible for, you know, coming up with solutions to problems, come up with solutions to real problems. And I think that's what McLaren have got to, you know, in the years gone past, I've been to McLaren and sat with them during the time whenever I was giving them a bit of rubbish in my media stuff, you know, as I do. Um, not meaning to, to, by any means, to rubbish McLaren because they're a team that I actually think is fantastic. Because and I worked there, you know, back in the old days. Um, but what what I could see from outside was they weren't they weren't they weren't seeing outside of the forest. You know, they were inside there and in, in among the trees and, and didn't look out. Now you need to get outside sometimes and look in. And once you do that, you can see a whole lot of different things. And I think that's one thing that McLaren have done. I think again the same deal would be. I saw Toto Wolf getting a quick interview after the race at Silverstone. And, you know, he was saying, oh, you know, their problem is straight line speed. Um, it's not. It isn't straight line speed. It's a whole combination of stuff that adds to straight line speed. So, you know, you, you need to accept there's a problem, find that problem and really focus on it. And, and I think McLaren, that, that front-running bunch, are the team that have done that best. And, and I think their progress is, is relative to acceptance of a problem. And going off and, and identifying how to fix it and, and fixing it. And they've done a great job. Yeah, I think your point there is very valid because I remember at the start of the season when they had the launch, they were very downbeat at their launch. And it was a little bit concerning. You're thinking, well, this is pretty negative stuff from this team. And they were still making noises about as the season progresses, we want to get up to be in a position where we're fourth fastest or whatever. And, and we're thinking, well, that's pretty optimistic. But I think that does probably reflect some some very clear injection of reality, I guess, that that, that they yeah. had there. And it is interesting because I think teams are so big now. They're so enormous. As you say, that whole thing of sometimes you need to look in from the outside. And I think that's probably something that holds true for anything as a general principle. But for the size the teams are now, the the inability to see kind of the bigger picture because everybody's got their own little area it's like yep. if you look at one little piece of data or i don't know you look at 
you look at a car's lap times or whatever and you say well this car's race pace wasn't very good on those tires but you don't look at the race scenario like was there was there a slower car that was just difficult to pass parts in front of whatever all these other things that and, and then you multiply that by the countless other factors so that seems to me to be the big challenge of f1 teams now how you get that kind of vision while there is so much going on because if you're at ground level it's so complicated there's so much going on how can you possibly begin to grasp it well if you if you take a typical example you know how many times have we heard about the the driver couldn't get the tires up to work on correctly in the first lap <laughs> and yet silverstone was an example because of the weather coming qualified cars were sitting down at the pit, end of the pit lane for 10 minutes you know on their tires they were going out to do a lap time on so you know in reality that's all rubbish it just means that you know, you you have to buy into the problem. And it's very easy to blame something. It's very easy to say, oh, the tires weren't right. You know, the tires didn't work right. The front tires weren't weren't up to temperature, blah, blah, blah. But when push comes to shove, at a race meeting where getting on the track was more important than being perfect, the, the cars went and sat down the end of the pit lane. And not one of those car tire temperatures would have been above 20 or 30 degrees whenever they left the pit lane because it wasn't the hottest day in the world either. And, uh, you know, it had rain about, a little bit of mist here and there. So... You know that that makes that's an example of looking of looking at it and, and actually not trying to find an excuse, just looking at the real you know the real picture. And as I say, it's 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 very important, even with the car itself. You know, you've got to do that. You've got to really look at where you really are and the circumstances behind it. Because you know, if you have to follow somebody, yeah. Well, this is why people wanted to qualify in pole position for hundreds of years. You know, on anything you're doing, if you're out front, you got less less risk than you have if you're in the middle of the pack. You've got less turbulence from other cars. Your your car can work as it works. So you can come to terms with your car much, much quicker. So it's, you know, it's in traffic, in the middle of a race, you know, if you're running ninth or 10th or 8th or wherever, and you've got three cars in front of you, um, your car isn't the car you're driving. It's the car that is left with that airflow that's coming off those three cars in front of you. And, and you have to be able to see through that a little bit, you know, and see where you're, where you see where you should be if you were out front and clean air. And we should say, obviously, this puts McLaren into that chasing group. I think it is going to fluctuate an enormous amount in the coming race. I think Hungary probably will play a bit more to the weaknesses of the car. So we'll probably see Aston Martin rising, as you alluded to, and McLaren maybe struggling a bit more. So, but, but there's the, just that group of cars that's going to get shuffled around from race to race. It is pretty remarkable how extreme that group is now. It was pretty... Uh, attention grabbing even if it was just Aston Martin Ferrari and Mercedes but now you've got McLaren kind of inching its way in there and every once in a while Alpine threatens to latch onto it before falling back away again so it shows that behind that Red Bull it's actually been an utterly fascinating season if Red Bull Racing didn't exist we'd probably be calling this an all-time classic championship battle so that tells you how you know the regulations aren't necessarily the only thing that dictates it no, that's for sure. And I think you're sort of slightly wrong there in it being Red Bull. I think, you know, we've got to, we've got to ask the big question sometime very soon. Max Verstappen against Sergio Perez in the same car. You know, that is the car. Now, if that was another team, if that was, you know, Mercedes or Ferrari or, you know, yeah, McLaren, and they were, the drivers were so far apart so often, um, you'd have to sort of think, hang on a minute or two, what's going on here? Um, but at the minute, because... You know, you get they sort of get away with it. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Sergio, but for some reason he's not he's not at home with the car. Um, there is something in the way it's, you have to drive it, but Max just seems to be on it. Now, whenever we look at any track you go to, it doesn't matter which track, within the first three laps of practice on a Friday morning, Max is normally the fastest of the lot of anybody, normally, and that shows the confidence the guy has in what he's got under him. Because you have to have it. To do that in the beginning of, the, of a practice session on a Friday morning when the track's still a bit dirty and you haven't been around the track and, you know, you're learning about the new curbs that have been fitted and all that sort of stuff, you know, it still match goes bish, bash, bosh and does it. And Sergio seems to have a battle. If he starts bad, you know, on a weekend or on a Friday, he never really recovers. If he starts decent, then he, he sort of can maintain it normally. Um, but there's a big difference there somewhere along the line. So... I think anything behind Red Bull and Max Verstappen, you've got to say that's a very, very competitive season. And we see, we've seen Williams, you know, that's fantastic to see them and, and Alex Albon getting up into that top 10, you know. Um, 
you could say now on a regular basis, you know, to beat two Ferraris at Silverstone, no matter how it happened, it doesn't really matter. You know, the, the CV will still say I have two Ferraris behind me. Um, so that's, that's fine. Um, but yeah, I'd like to see, I'd like to see, you know, be more competitive. It's a lot closer from front to back because the regulations have defined that it's a lot closer. The regulations are, you know, so, so complete, I suppose you might call it for what the car can be, that it's a small detail. Uh, so it's closed the grid up, but you know, the front team and the back team are still the front team and the back team. Yeah, that will always be the way, but it's certainly made for an interesting British Grand Prix weekend, and I'm sure it will be very fascinating when we get to Hungary shortly. You're listening to The Race F1 Tech Show, brought to you by Aramco. Aramco continuously push the limits of engineering excellence. As the global energy partner of F1, they drive a shared vision to real-world innovation that aims to lower emissions, enhance performance and accelerate human potential. Aramco, powered by HAL. One of the things Gary and I had the chance to do during the British Grand Prix weekend was to take a look at the new Aston Martin F1 base that's now occupied by the team. I'd had the chance to visit a few times before it was complete, so it was my first time seeing it in fully realised form, while for Gary it was a first look round. So here's our chat from Thursday evening in the Aston Martin factory. Well, you may hear a little bit of music in the background because we are at the new Aston Martin factory. It's Thursday night at the British Grand Prix and they're having a big media event to show everyone around. Obviously, I got to go around the factory a few months ago when it wasn't quite complete. I was here for the launch as well. But you don't really want to hear from me because Gary is the perfect man. Now, Gary, obviously, you built pretty much the first factory for this team, if you can call an industrial unit of Silverstone, and you were heavily involved in the one that's just been replaced. So what's your first impression, having had a wander around this new state-of-the-art facility? Well, I think you'd say it's different. Um, I mean, they've done a fantastic job here. <clears throat> to be honest, it's, it is interesting because the, the architect, Guy Austin, is the same guy that did the, the ex-Jordan factory. Um, so it carries, you know, it carries some, something over, I suppose you might call it, but the way this is laid out, I'm impressed. I've just been up for a wander around the drawing office there, and it's just massive. There's something like 500 seats up there, you know. So it incorporates everybody, all the race engineers, you know, the, the, the wind tunnel, the aerodynamists, um, all the uh, design engineers. It incorporates everybody, but it's, it is absolutely huge besides what I was used to. And as you say, going back to the, the start of Jordan, we were in a lockup uh, across on the track, one of the actual Silverstone buildings, and... Um, you know, when I arrived there, there was there was no office, there was nothing. We, I ended up building it with somebody else just to get some partition walls up and uh, and then finding three drawing boards and, and so on. And then, interestingly, <coughs> Andy Stevenson, the, the um, team manager, was just showing, a racing director, or whatever he's called now, was just showing me a, a roll of Jordan 191 drawings that they've got up there. I've got a roll in the loft of my garage. And at some point in time, we're going to get together and hopefully invite yourself and a cameraman up here to the factory because they're going to put them on a, on a wall somewhere. And I had to just, let's roll out 30 years ago and see what it was like. It'd be interesting. I'd love to see it. The ones they've got are all, all manufacturing drones. The ones I've got are all schemes. So there'd be a nice compromise between the, the actual thing and the, the schemes that we did. So it'd be an interesting day, I think. Yeah, that'll be quite something. And to give people an idea of where we are, we're by the race base, so that's where the cars are prepared. The great thing about this factory is the design office you just referenced, that's upstairs, really, really big. And I know everyone working here has been desperate to move into those as they did recently because the old factory was rather... uh, they rather outgrown it by quite some margin. But there's also, in terms of the way this is laid out, everything's meant to be logical and coherent. There's the big long street, the street as it's called, with everything off it. So what do you make of just the general layout and the coherence of everything? Because there's a lot made about the fact this is a smart factory and it's optimised for modern F1. Yeah, I think it's laid out very well. I think it's very important that you get some continuity through the factory. And this, this street does that because, as you say, each side of it there is something uh, it's all labelled on the on the doors what what's inside of there, um, so you you know you, you can walk down that street, and you can see every every department, you can see everybody, they can see you. So communication with this type of layout is a lot easier than if somebody's hidden in a corner somewhere, you know, in a, in a port cabin out the back. You know, it's, it's actually really open. So that's that's an important thing for me. The race bays, you know, it's probably the smallest part of the, of the actual operation. There's four little bays here. 
plus another bay they have for setting bits and pieces up and sorting them out. But um, yeah, there's room for four cars in here that you can take the bits or put together or whatever. And then you've got all the sub-assembly shops. But they're all connected up somehow. So it is, it is very important that because communication between all the people in the company, which is now, I think it's around 800 people, everybody counts. And the more you can get that communication to work, the better the product will be. So, yeah, I think they've done a good job. One of the things that does strike me, and this was something they, and this was something they talked about actually when we came round when it was uh, being built, is for a race bay, it's actually quite light and airy, and there, there is natural light coming through. That was something they were very, very keen on. I've been to a lot of the race bays in F1 factories, and they're quite often pretty much sealed in, and it's all artificial light. So, actually, this feels like quite a sort of spacious, airy factory by F1 standards. They're obviously taking into account the human element as well as the practicalities. Yeah, I think they focused on that. You know, again, the drawing off is the view out of the, out of the, the main window right down one side of the factory is amazing. Um, we had a good view out of the drawing office in the old factory as well. Uh, but this being 10 times the length makes it a bit different. But it, it is very open. You know, even though you're in a, a confined space as such, like the race bays are, because obviously you don't need much more than the size of a car and a, a metre around it to work on the car, build the cars up, and all your benches and tools. But... Even within that area, you know, it's, it's very open and it's a lot of it's glass. So everywhere has glass. You can see, you can see in. I mean, I remember way back uh, when Brabham moved their factory from uh, from what was Newhall to Chesington, and I I left whenever I was at Newhall and I rejoined them again at Chesington. And the biggest difference they did was build every wall up so it was like seven foot tall, and with doors so you couldn't see anybody, and it was the most disappointing thing I've ever seen in my life because you just, communication it didn't breed communication at all to get something done you had to go and look for somebody and find them, whereas with this, with all the glass all the windows, all the open areas, you know, you can find people so it's, uh, yeah, very good I have to say I'm, I'm actually really impressed yeah, all of the leadership at Aston Martin has made a big thing about the communication side. I know technical director Dan Fallows has talked about it. Mike Crack, the team principal, was just talking about it. But it's also a great example here of just how much F1 teams have grown in terms of the fact we've got all these separate departments. Quite a few of them even I can look into and I know what's going on in them. But it's almost a baffling array. All the functions of a Grand Prix team, I guess a lot of them were there in the past, but they're all kind of thrown together. But now you've got all these separate areas for fabrication and obviously non-destructive testing as you were just talking about so there's there's so much broken down now that you can see every almost small phase of, of the car just by looking through a few doorways and uh, and windows yeah i mean going back through the years of jordan and to you know uh, the, the name changes on the way to aston martin um the big emphasis was because the factory was quite small was to to get manufacturers outside to supply stuff to you but then you still had to do your inspection and you still had to do i like to call it the destructive testing not non-destructive testing because you know, there's nothing like breaking something. Is that just you with a big mallet hitting things? It's more or less, yeah. Um, jumping on a front wing or whatever. But yeah, no, you have to do non-destructive testing because all the componentry that goes on in the car, um, you know, the wishbone assemblies, the wing mounts, everything, they'll be tested to, to a level and that will you'll measure deflection. But that level's still quite a long way away from, from the ultimate um, force that the thing will stand. So that's how you do it. And then every... Every component that's built will be tested to the same parameters, so you know that it's actually in line uh, with what you expect from it. You don't go to the destructive part, other than maybe right at the beginning of, of its life, to just to see where the what the safety factor are, is on, on a certain component. Um, so you have to have all these areas, and as I say, the old, with the old factory, where everything was manufactured outside, so you really had to keep a good, strong eye on it coming in from an outside supplier. Here, because everything's inside, any problems that pop up, you can you can relate to it immediately and actually identify it and fix it. So it's actually easier having all these people and really um, pursuing everything in the house because you can control it a lot better. And, and that's where they'll benefit from, is just the, having the control over the, the componentry that makes the car up. So, yeah, it's, it's, all, it's all a good shift. And that having control is a big thing for Aston Martin. Obviously, there's a lot less they're doing that they're outsourcing. It's not always the most cost-effective way to do it and often not the best way to get the very highest quality. But also, there's the, the, the whole question about expansion of their facilities, doing the hydraulic system down the line themselves. The gearbox there, almost certainly going to have to do themselves with Honda, depending on what the regulations are. So they're already thinking about what gearbox dynos and that kind of thing they need. Obviously, a lot of the equipment in here was in the old factory, but there's a lot of new stuff as well. So 
when you've had a look around, does this give you a, a big extra boost of confidence that this team is going to go places? Obviously, the results this year have already done a big part of that. But are you sold on Aston Martin racing in F1? I don't think it can ever be sold on anybody. I think Mercedes are a bit of an example of that this year and last year and even Ferrari over the last few years. You can never sort of confidently say that any team knows what makes it work. But they're in a position now where they've, they've got the momentum going. And I have to say I was quite impressed by, by speaking to the race team guys that I know very well. They're, they've sort of done a very good job at keeping themselves detached from the fact of this expansion, just focusing on what they're there to do, which is you know, run the cars at a race meeting and do the best job they can and try to keep their head down and not uh, get too excited about you know, new white walls. And that's important because you can lose yourself very quickly. You can get too excited about everything and expect it to be different. It isn't different. Come Sunday, there'll be a car sitting in the front of the grid that'll be fastest, and there'll be a car sitting at the back of the grid that'll be slowest. That hasn't changed because you've got a bigger factory. It'll still be there. So you've got to go to a race meeting, and you've got to you know, do the best job you can with the, the piece of equipment you have. And Aston Martin this year started strongly. They've you know Over the last three or four races they have sort of petered out a little bit I'm not sure why that is but I think everybody was expecting them at Monaco to potentially bring home a a, a win and then it kept on that momentum or that thought kept kept on going over the next couple of races now we're just at Silverstone it's a a really fantastic track it requires you know a a driver can contribute uh, a chassis can contribute so this is a track where the car will stand out a little bit depending upon who you are and this, it's the first one of these for quite a few races. So this is probably a good measure, and hopefully the weather will, will allow it to sort of unfold. Because you, after this weekend, I think you'll have a very good measure on where everybody stands. We've just seen technical director Dan Fallows wandering past, having a bit of a look around, enjoying his new surroundings. Obviously the team only moved in a few weeks ago, really. So almost they're still settling in and getting used to where everything is and how everything works and I'm sure there's quite a long snag, uh, snagging list of uh, various things that they've had to uh, had to fix but how long do you think it would take to get 100% used to working in a place like this compared to the old place is it the kind of thing that you move in as you say you're focused on your job and after five minutes of uh, admiring the, the white walls you, you get on with it or will it take a little bit of time to be 100% comfortable and not have to kind of think oh where do I need to go well, how does this work well, I don't think they actually sort of use like a light, sw- a light switch to move in. <clears throat> the, the upstairs area moved in first. That's all the drawing office area, uh, design, the design area, all the offices. So they all got, got working first and then they moved in downstairs. So I think they've done it the right way. It will be different, but at the end of the day, they've sort of set them up in little groups. So communication in the drawing office is, is within its own group. So if you have a, a suspension area, then you, you, know, you, you have them all together so they can talk to each other easily. And they've got little coffee shops and stuff so that you can all meet up for a cup of coffee and a bit of a chat. So I think they've really tried to keep that communication line as open as possible as you get bigger. And I don't think the, 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 the factory itself will really hurt the communication. It's about the expansion. The expansion so quickly could hurt it. But in reality, they haven't expanded as quickly as I thought. You know, they have placed a few people in there. They've given them time to get their, uh, their feet under their desk. And then, you know, they've expected something from them. So I think it's a very, it seems to me like it's a pretty open place to, to, to operate. Um, and that's a bit of contrary to what I actually thought from the outside. So the people, as I say, the people that are working here, that were working here in Jordan days, I've spoken to, they're, they're quite enthusiastic for it all. And they're, they're all willing to make it work because there's a motivation driving through the factory. And that could bring them, you know, success in the, in the near future. Well, it certainly seems to be going that way. We'll let you now, Gary, have a bit more of a rummage around and see what it is you like and don't like about the factory because there's always some, uh, some things you notice that aren't quite up to scratch. So uh, we'll leave you to do a little bit of tidying up and uh, a bit more admiring the new walls. Well, if you're listening to this podcast, you must recognise the value of asking questions. At Aramco, answering questions helps them engineer a better future. So if you'd like to know how something works in F1, it'd be great if you sent us a question. And if you're lucky, we might answer it on a future episode. You can either write us a question and email it to podcasts at com, or record a voice note remembering to include your name that we can play on the show. And our question this week is from JG Proponet, who says... 
With the current comments from Hamilton regarding starting work on next year's car, I was wondering what is the advantage in working on the 2024 car instead of continuing improving the current car. Since there are no changes for rules for next year, continuous improvement seems like the way to go, unless, like Mercedes, you want a major change in your rear suspension or chassis, so Red Bull could keep developing the current car and still be ahead for next year. Yeah, um, JG, I think you've, you've sort of asked the question and answered it yourself. Um, if you have got a you know a fundamental problem that means you need to build a new chassis or you know new transmission housing because of the rear suspension, or you want to you know you want to go from a push rod to a pull rod front end, or you you really want to attack the the anti dive or anti lift characteristics, then fine. Um, the 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 best way of saving some money um, out of your budget cap money is to to not build a new chassis for next year, um, just because it's next year. You know, a chassis itself now is probably, you know, I don't know, two hundred thousand pounds. That sort of area of uh, of expenditure, um, at least one hundred and fifty. Um, but it takes a lot of a lot of design time. It takes a lot of. If you're going to change it, you've got to have really, really good reasons for changing it. Now, as for Red Bull, I don't see any major reason for doing that. So yes, I agree with you. Just continue developing the twenty the twenty twenty three car, spending that chassis money that you would have spent on on. Um, on building a new chassis, um, you know, wisely, you might still build, you know, a couple of new chassis for the drivers, but you wouldn't change the geometry of it. So you wouldn't have to do all the new tooling and all the research time that goes into that. Um, so you, you know, you will be better off financially and, uh, you know, uh, you can develop a few more front wings or a few more underfloors as the season goes by. Whereas, you know, Lewis Hamilton said something strange, I think after the race, I think in one of his interviews, he said, I know what's wrong and I need to tell the team. Um, it, was a, it seemed a very strange statement from a driver because obviously we all know what's wrong. Um, the stopwatch doesn't lie. Um, there's something fundamentally with the car. And, uh, you know, whereas James Allison was saying a couple of weeks ago, you know, it's not all in the underflow, there's lots of other stuff that goes on and it's not Lewis's driving position and so on and so forth. So there seems to be a little bit of loggerheads between the technical department at Mercedes, uh, the driving department at Mercedes, um, and, you know, Toto might have a couple of fires to put out there fairly soon to just keep it all flowing along in the right direction. I know Lewis knows what's wrong with the car because he drives it and, he, you know, he must explain to the engineers what he feels in the car. But um, I don't think he should take on the job as, uh, of being technical director yet. He's, I don't think he's got that experience. Um, so I do agree with you that, you know, the 24 will be a sort of, should be more or less an invisible year. The teams that haven't got a theoretical Red Bull aerodynamic philosophy may have to join that club. Um, but it's not its not just a magic bullet either. There's a hell of a lot more to it. We'll still see, you know, you could have all the cars looking like Red Bulls and there'll still be one at the front and one at the back. Who'd it be? Who knows? But there'll still be one at the front and one at the back. I think it's quite an interesting question with Mercedes about the direction they need to go in because it can be quite easy for a team to see they're struggling and they'll partly understand why in that they'll understand the limitations of their car and it's very easy to look at another car and then say i want to do that you know there's stories of non-technical team bosses should we say saying right they've done that they're good so you're going to do that go in that direction i imagine you you were uh, had that sort of pressure on you at times but you always wanted to know why oh, yeah. you were doing things so do you think there's a danger mercedes are, are getting a tiny bit lost with things because it's very easy to say right that's the direction we go in and then you have a little moment where things go well and it doesn't go so well and you lose confidence in it and you can start going off in another direction. So I imagine there's that crisis of confidence as well in that they must be sitting there thinking, well, we know we need to do something. We know some of the answer to the question. We know a certain percentage of it. They probably know most of most of it, but those crucial little few percent of knowledge, they're missing. So it can be really difficult because it's, it's dead easy to hair off in a direction, but very, very difficult to choose the right one. Yeah, it is. I mean, as I've said many times, you know, there's no team out there, and this includes Red Bull, that know 100% what makes the car fast. They're just the team that's winning at, the ta- at a given set of entire, given point in time with a given set of regulations seems to know most of what makes that car work for those regulations. And it's not so much the, the, uh, the aerodynamic geometry of the car, I suppose, you know, the surface detail or the geometry, as I say, of the, of the surfaces. It's more the aerodynamic philosophy of the team and the leadership of the aerodynamic philosophy. 
what you're trying to achieve. And that's a similar thing to say is, you know, wh- what level of acceptance do you, does your group put on center pressure shift during breaking? You know, is it half a percent acceptable? One percent? Two percent? Do you really care? Um, the same with steering lock, you know, for every degree of steering lock between your high speed corners with two or three degrees of steering lock to low speed corner with nine degrees of steering lock. What, what do you want the center of pressure to do? You know, what is that objective? That's the philosophy of the car. And also, you know, you arrive at a corner, you hit the brake pedal. Let's say you arrive, you know, 340 kilometers, end up straight. You hit the brake pedal, you got a 250 kilometer corner, still a very fast corner. So aerodynamics are dominating. And, you know, you've got all that transient condition from the end of the straight when you've tried everything you can to make the car as efficient as possible down the straight to get the maximum speed out of it, including the DRS being open. So you shut the DRS in, you know, that sort of speed change, you're talking about 80 metres braking, you know, not, not very far. So within 80 metres of hitting the brake pedal, you're going to turn the steering wheel and you want the car to give you confidence that you can turn it, that it will turn and not just go straight on that it will turn and not just keep rotating and the rear end give up. And then through that rule, the transient steering um, and coming back from the, the, the attitude change that you had under braking, uh, you know, you want the centre of pressure, the balance to stay the same. So the driver can really, you know, exploit the speed through the corner. And we've had many, many drivers through time. You know, Jensen Button was typical of carrying good corner speed. Um, and when Lewis Hamilton was driving with Jensen at, at McLaren, um, you know, Lewis was one of the late breakers. So you've got different drivers in the same car trying to achieve the same thing. So you're trying to adapt your philosophy, aerodynamic philosophy, to suit the driving style of one or two drivers. And that's really why Max Verstappen is uh, doing what he's doing, because he has bought into the fact that Adrian Newey's aerodynamic philosophy and his driving philosophy are teaming up and you know they get they get the best out of it both of them get the best out of it so it's not as i say just the body geometry it's more the philosophy of how you want because all the all in all these cars the center of pressure shift will move around it'll do things and it's just about trying to get that to work for what you want it to to do at given times during the cornering phase yeah and it's fascinating really that we're already well advanced on 2024 cars for those teams that obviously they've been running stuff in the wind tunnel for some time already it starts earlier and earlier and almost the the real battle that will be manifested on track next year is being fought already so uh, lots of work going on behind the scenes but certainly you'd be very happy to be in Red Bull's position so thanks very much for that question and for anyone who has a question to ask remember the address to send it to is podcasts at the race.com that's podcasts at the hyphen race.com and as I always say no question is too simple because there are always hidden depths and Gary is up for tackling questions no matter how complex or seemingly straightforward so thanks Gary for your wise words on this episode we're going to be back between the Hungarian and Belgian Grand Prix for our next episode so join us then for more from Gary you've been listening to the race f1 tech show brought to you by Aramco be sure to like follow or subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you never miss an episode the athletic